0: Hello and welcome to the Thinking LSAD podcast. This is episode 42. My name is Ben Olson and I'm in Washington, D.C. With me today, uh, I have Nathan Fox in San Francisco and Heather Jarvis, the student loan expert in, wait, did you say Wilmington, North Yep, Carolina?
1: Wilmington, okay. North Carolina.
0: Okay, great. So um, Nathan, how you doing? Awesome, man. Yeah, how are you? Good, good. A little sweaty, actually. I, I just I ran here, so. Um, but other than that, good. Uh, how about you, Heather?
1: Doing great. A little sleepy, but um, working on some more coffee.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> good, good. Well, um, so we're gonna talk about student loan stuff, obviously, because we have Heather here today, and then we'll take some other questions from listeners. And we do have a couple questions specifically for you, Heather. But before we jump into those questions, I guess I want to introduce you a little bit to our listeners so they know who you are and where you're coming from. Um, When I was reading your bio uh, before the show started, I noticed that you went to Duke Law School, right?
1: I did. Go Blue Devils.
0: Okay, good. And um, you yourself, you, you explained that you graduated and had a lot of student loan debt, and maybe that's part of the reason you're doing what you're doing now, I guess, or what? what's your your story there? My sister
1: and I are both, um, we're first generation college educated and so if it if it was going to be education for us, it was going to be student loans or nothing. So um, I ended up borrowing $125,000 by the time I graduated from the law school at Duke, which I know these days is not so impressive, um, but it's uh, you know it's a lot of money. And my plan had always been to represent poor people and be a public interest lawyer. And I did that, but it was made a lot trickier um, because of my student loan debt. So I've been focusing exclusively on debt relief programs and kind of advocating for student loan borrowers for about the last 10 years.
0: Okay. Yeah. And you actually got to pursue what you wanted to, right, by getting some loan forgiveness as well or... What exactly? I
1: did. I was lucky because Duke has a generous loan repayment assistance program that made it, you know, possible for me to take low-paying public service jobs and still pay, you know, my rent and my bills. Um, but that said, you know, I'm still making payments on my student loans, even though I've been out of law school 15 years. And, um, it has had a a tremendous impact on my life and, you know, my, my family's life. I don't, I don't regret it for a minute because I've, I've been uh, able to do, you know, what I've wanted to do, uh, with my career and my legal education and I needed to borrow in order to get educated. And so I'm glad that I did that. Now, would it have been nicer to get, you know, a fancy education with no student loans? Yeah, but that's not how it, it is. Um. In the world we live in
0: yeah now today you work with students who are trying to go to, to law school as well as other high or expensive uh legal careers or i mean educational pursuits right so wh- wh- who, who do you typically work with and
1: yeah so they- you know, my kind of specialty is um student loans and the repayment and forgiveness provisions associated with them so my focus is mostly on the issues that face people who have significant educational costs so that tends to be a lot of graduate and professional degree holders like lawyers um, and you know law students before them but also veterinarians and you know various folks who have a lot of education and really my Clients end up being uh, the universities and professional associations and employers, usually, of these students and graduates. So I don't work directly with folks about their own loans. Um, My focus instead is to do um, training and kind of self-help guidance and assistance for borrowers, but to really sort of shift the costs of what I do to the organizations that benefit from the you know the student loan system
0: okay so you go to an employer or a school and then you present information to their students or their employees about how to navigate this process I guess
1: yeah that's right I do a lot of that
0: okay cool well we have a couple questions from listeners if if this sounds good to jump into now, unless you had anything else you wanted to say before
1: that. Yeah, go, go for it.
0: Okay, so this first one is from Rachel, and she says, uh, I really appreciate that you guys are talking about the cost of law school. This is a big concern of mine. And then she actually was the one who suggested we have someone like you on the show. And um, she said she'd love to know more about need-based versus merit-based scholarships. And that's where she answer questions. So any thoughts you have on that would be great.
1: Yeah. So, so Rachel's been thinking about the issue that's clear from her question. And so she's absolutely right that the, the cost of earning a law degree is significant and it, it ought to be part um, of people's decision-making when they're considering law schools and considering how to pay for legal education. So specifically with regard to Rachel's questions about need-based versus merit-based aid, we've seen really in higher education across the board, including within legal education, uh, really a shift from pure need-based to more of an emphasis on merit. By need, in this case, we mean people who have backgrounds that make it more difficult for them to pay out of pocket for some you know, portion of their education cost. Because in reality, there's a there's a way in which, you know, all of us as graduate students or law students have some need because we're seen as and are um, independent of, from parents. So if you're a law student, you're you're uh, often not working or not working full time, particularly at first. And there are some restrictions on that. So, you know, everybody kind of needs um, money to pay for these high tuitions. But we're talking about, you know, more of a measurement of a demographic um, financial need. So in reality, in many schools are targeting the scholarship money they do have to give um, more towards a particular caliber of, of student. Um, they care a lot about um, undergraduate grades and um, LSAT scores. And so depending on where you fall within that kind of continuum of, of strength on your qualifications. You know, schools have different kind of levels that they're looking for, and people will get typically better financial aid offers and and scholarship offers at schools uh, where you're you know, grades and test scores are above their, their median uh, and where you're kind of a big fish, you know, in a small pond. Whereas if you are someone who's going to a school that is kind of a reach for you in terms of, it, of meeting the admission requirements, then you're less likely to get significant scholarship money. But I should mention, Ben, that another kind of related issue that folks should be thinking about is this phenomenon that's referred to as tuition discounting which is kind of like a scholarship in that it's, you know, sort of free money that you don't have to repay. Um, but particularly in recent years, there's been a big decline in the number of applicants to law schools. And so in order to keep their classes full, um, many schools are not charging the full sticker price to every student. And that's sort of a de facto scholarship. Well, how about that use of Latin? How how lawyerly is that? <laughs>
2: This is the first I've heard of tuition discounting. I mean, I, I've heard of tuition discounting in the sense of just people, everybody getting partial scholarships, right? I mean, there's schools around here where like 80% of the student body is on some sort of scholarship, mm-hmm. which seems an awful lot like just charging different people different prices but you're saying that they're actually doing this formally now where it's just oh for you the tuition is this much and for you the tuition is this much and they're not framing that as a scholarship?
1: Well, no, I do think they're framing it as a scholarship.
2: Oh, I see. Okay. I think
1: that it that it is, you know, seen as one and the same from within the context of, you know, legal education as a business. Because for a school, you know, it's it's kind of interesting to note that the most of the so-called free money that you don't have to repay for law school, um, the lion's share of it does come from the institutions, so the universities, the law schools themselves, and so there's a way in which it's you know it's essentially the same thing. You know, they either charge you less or they give you money for for you to give back to them. So as long as it's something less than Full tuition and fees. So, if unless you're getting money that is uh, for living expenses that exceeds the amount of the cost of the school, it's uh, it has the same effect as a discount, and it's um, that sort of commonness of it is lately being referred to more as tuition discounting because it isn't like they have like an official named endowed scholarship program where the you know applicants have to meet particular career goals or you know whatever it is having been born under the sign of leo on the left side of the street or whatever it's that it's like oh we want you to go to our school and so we're going to give you this scholarship yes in this like large amount
2: yeah, it does make sense to refer to it as tuition discounting rather than a scholarship. You're you're never getting that money.
1: Right, exactly. Yes.
0: Although, I mean, it is still based on your LSAT and GPA and overall application strength, right? Because that's that's how they're making. It's not completely arbitrary. It's somewhat based on a on your merit, right? And so they're saying, oh, we like you better, therefore we're going to give you a scholarship." It's not formally a scholarship, but that's effectively how they're justifying it, I'm assuming, or deciding who should get such
1: discounts. Yeah, that's right. So that's absolutely right. And, And, you know, kind of both those things can be true though. So on the one hand, they're recruiting specific students for their particular qualifications, as you mentioned, but then they're also determining how much of that to do and how generous to be in that regard, based on the total number of applicants and the total number of uh, slots in the class so that they can get that sort of sweet spot that works for the business model of the education as well. Because, you know, and I think that not everybody's aware of this. I don't know why anyone, but anybody would be who doesn't think about this a lot, but you know, most law schools are what we call tuition dependent. So they're mainly nonprofit organizations that spend all the money that they bring in. All the revenue they bring in, which is primarily from tuition dollars, is used for a combination of, you know, salaries of faculty and staff and, you know, other operating expenses. So it's not like you know, they're, they're making a profit, but they need, according to their calculations, a specific amount for meeting budget requirements each year.
0: So is there anything that a student can do to increase their chances of getting this kind of discount or scholarship other than trying to make their application as good as it can be, which they're going to be doing anyways, presumably, but is there, can, they be, can they ask Consideration of this, or what what's uh, what's some things that students can do differently?
1: Yeah, so people can do a number of things. Um, to begin with, it makes sense to prepare as best you can by really carefully contemplating the costs of earning the degree and the impact of educational debt, as well as you know making financial plans so that when you do enter school, you're in a position to be successful, for example, by doing things to try to minimize how much you may owe on things like credit cards and such before you get there. But as far as as arranging the you know kind of best financial aid package that you can, everyone needs to continue to use that free application for federal student aid. Some um, schools require that you submit additional information, and there can be deadlines, sometimes very early ones. And then, yes, it's worth being aware of how your um, application compares to the ideal student on a particular campus, or the kind of median student that they're looking for, and to recognize that you're likely to have more success getting a tuition reduction or additional scholarship funds if your credentials are above average for for the prestige level of a given institution, and. I think, you know, from from my perspective, I think it makes sense to consider attending all the law schools that you're interested in attending for reasons that make sense to you, like the curriculum that's offered, you know, particular clinical offerings that you might find interesting or, you know, geographic location, cost and and potentially also prestige. But depending on what you want to do, some you know schools are a better fit for some people than other schools are. But within that kind of personalized framework, it's worth thinking about both the sticker price of a school, you know, and what they advertise to be the tuition and fees, as well as the indirect costs of going to law school. So that includes books, um, room and board, health insurance, that kind of thing. And those can vary a whole lot depending on where you're living. Um, you know, like I know, Nathan, you're in San Francisco, which is fabulous and really, really expensive, as is New York. So people can consider, you know, to, to what extent it makes sense for them to save in that area if it does. And then, yeah, you, you can negotiate some Ben I think that people should recognize that the initial offer that you're given is not always the final offer, but it really depends on how you fit into what they're looking for.
0: So one thing I kind of take away from what you're saying here is that if you feel like you're an above average student for that university or that law school, then maybe you should be more proactive in terms of how you respond. I mean, I guess you should always be proactive, but if they give you an offer, odds are greater that you could probably get something more from them if you're above their
1: average. Yeah, or, or get something from them. So depending on how good their, you know, first offer is. So I think that mm. if you are um, excited to have gotten into a school that you felt was really a stretch and where you're, you're falling on the lower end of what of the sort of students uh, credentials that they admit, it may be the case that you're going to pay a lot closer to sticker price or full price, um, which may be all right if that's what you decide to do. But if you're, for example, choosing between a couple of schools that seem to be of pretty well equal value, or you're trying to decide between schools that offer different things that all sound good, yeah, do recognize that you know it's it's not all about the the rankings and the U.S. News and World Report. I mean that information is of. I think really limited value to people who are considering where to go to law school. And that when it comes to some, especially some of the more minor distinctions between schools in terms of prestige, you might really benefit a lot financially from considering going to a school that's, you know, a few ticks down on someone's measure, if it meets all of all of your needs, and you can, you can get some money thrown into the deal.
0: Yeah, Nathan, do you have any questions or thoughts? Yeah, uh, I was
2: just going to ask. I, one question that I get a lot is, "How do I ask for more money?"
1: Politely, <laughs> you know. I mean, I think that you can do it with members of the uh, admissions team at the school. Probably, um, I would recommend before financial aid professionals necessarily, and to you know let them let them know what you know other options that you may be considering, and to give them the information that. You know, the money is a concern for you, Um, you know, and specifically to even say, you know, is this, is this everything will you, you know, is there, is there anything more that you can do? Because I'm, you know, on the fence, and just sort of let them know that you care about it, and see where you get. And I'm not trying to say I don't mean to say that uh, a school is going to be trying to lowball you or anything. I I don't I don't think that that's actually the way that it often that it often goes. I think that most of the evaluation from the school's perspective about how much you're worth to them in terms of how you know, how much you'd have to pay to go to their school versus how much they'd be willing to to discount or give scholarships for. I think a lot of that is, you know, outside of your control and has maybe already gone on before you before you are even getting an offer or making a negotiation. But they do um, have do some fine-tuning through the uh, recruitment process um, in an effort to, you know, fill the class.
2: Well, they really are trying to, I mean, I, I know that they're, you say they're not trying to lowball you, but they are in business, they need money to continue operating, they're charging everyone a different price. So they are going to try to charge you the most they can charge you and still get you to go to their school, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, certainly, I, I don't, you know, doubt that that's, that that's absolutely true. Um, but I think in terms of evaluating what the market will bear, that they have a lot of information from the beginning so <clears throat> no one has perfect information yeah. but the school has some sense of what is the you know the fair price cuz they sure. know what their like competitive peer institutions would be doing and the like so
2: but they don't know how important money is to you that's right right and and so you can go ahead and tell them hey i'm paying for this myself or i'm concerned about xyz is there something more you can do for me?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right, and I think you should. Um, and I think particularly in light of the reality, which is that you're not going to find really any other free money. I mean, there are there are some scholarships here and there, but they are almost exclusively institutionally based. So they are they are from the school to the school's students. And when it comes to, you know, federal government sources like you may be used to as an undergraduate, there really isn't any need-based aid. I mean, what you're going to get to pay for law school are student loans, and they're not even subsidized. So um, lots of folks will have gotten some student loans where the government helps to pay the interest while you're in undergraduate school. If you demonstrate a financial need, you can get these subsidized loans. Subsidized loans are no longer available for professional school, so you'll start out with unsubsidized federal student loans, which are fine, um, but they're you know the interest starts to accrue straight away and continues to accrue, you know, forever. And then once you borrow everything that's permitted under that federal unsubsidized loan program, um, most law students look next to a, a program called Grad Plus, which is. Another federal student loan program um, that permits you to borrow up to the full cost of attendance at the law school. And the cost of attendance is a budget that the school has determined. And it includes the big ticket items like tuition um, and fees, but it also includes the school's estimate of appropriate living expenses, you know, housing and food and health insurance and such. And so you're, you're allowed to borrow that much, whatever that amount is, and it differs based on the school and from those federal student loan programs. And um, you're, you're not going to you're not going to be getting a Pell Grant anymore like you may have had in undergraduate school.
2: Does anyone have a problem financing school? If once you get in, my understanding and correct me, please. Um, but my understanding is that most people are going to have no problem borrowing as much money as they need for those three years while they're in school.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much right. So most people are gonna have no problem. Um, there's no credit check or, or underwriting requirements for the um, unsubsidized loans at all. There is for the Grad Plus program, you have to not have what's referred to as adverse credit and it's a specific term of art, but it's it doesn't just mean that you you know, have a few late payments on your credit report or a, a short credit history, you have to actually have things like a foreclosure or a default or something like that. But even if that's the case, um, people can get what's called an endorser on a grad plus loan and then still be eligible to borrow it. So yeah, unless you have a, you know, super disastrous financial problem, like if you're, for example, if you're in default on, on, a, on a federal student loan, you won't be able to borrow again. Um, But most people have an easy time borrowing everything they need to, to pay for the education on borrowed money.
2: And then the problem comes at graduation?
1: Yeah, so that's when it gets tricky. So I would say that you know, it's, it's really smart, and I think it's hard because I think you get, ex, you get excited about your education or you're making plans, you know, for your career and your future, and you've got um, good reasons for pursuing the education you're pursuing. And so there's a real tendency, I know this happened to me, to sort of say, okay, well, I'm going to do what I need to do to get this education, and, and that's these loans, and then I'm going to figure out, you know, how to manage that later because there's nothing I can do about it now but actually you know you you can go in with your eyes open and i think it really helps to to get a sense of you know what are you going to what are you going to borrow and and what will that mean for you when you graduate in terms of you know what kind of monthly payments are you looking at what what options do you have for affordable monthly payments and and then i think also sort of significantly like what's it going to cost over time because that's the, the real hardship of debt is that you borrow money and then you end up paying back a whole lot more than what you borrowed because that's how interest works. Um, <laughs> you know, and when we spend money before we earn it, you know, there's a real cost to that. And it can be a lot more, I think, than sometimes than people might think just because of the way interest and loans work. And and unless you come from a family that's really knowledgeable about these things and talks about it and teaches the children and you within the home, um, most people aren't gonna have a lot of experience with this. Student loans are the first big significant debt that most people deal with.
2: It's the most expensive thing you're ever gonna buy with the possible exception of a house.
1: Yeah, right.
2: I like to tell my students, when I graduated from Hastings in 2011 my loan payments came in and I'll never forget the first statement because the first month's payment was more than my rent in San Francisco yep <laughs> so
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah
0: Ben did you borrow money uh, I did borrow a little bit I was really lucky actually when you when you just mentioned that it reminded me of what kind of happened the so I went into law school and I was already married and my wife was looking for work, and she found a pretty simple job at the university, and because she became an employee there, they gave me half tuition. Sweet. Yeah, for law school, which of course was like, made her salary astronomically higher than (laughs) what she was doing. She was an administrative assistant or something like that. But anyways, that helped a ton, so.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Was that taxable? I don't remember. I think but... not,
1: because I think it would be seen as a as a scholarship that wouldn't be wouldn't be taxable.
0: Yeah. Anyways, it was it was a huge benefit. So uh, I I left law school, and that was the biggest debt I had for a while until, like you're saying, Nathan, we bought a house, and now that's <laughs> right. <laughs> so any more on need based versus merit based, or should we jump into Joe? What would be helpful here?
1: You know, um, I'd love to just mention, and I want to make sure that your listeners understand that they should look first to those federal student loan programs we talked about. There are also private student loans that are offered by banks and private lenders. And I just want to be clear that private student loans are nearly always more expensive than federal loans, and they are risky to student loan borrowers. They don't have the kinds of consumer protections that federal student loans do. They don't have flexible repayment options and forgiveness provisions. They usually require co-signers and they can be much trickier to deal with. And more and more of the students that uh, Nathan's teaching to do a good job on the LSAT are going to be people who already have some private student loans and federal student loans from undergraduate school. And it's, it's those private loans that you'll have to, you know, make a specific strategy for dealing with once you're out of law school. And you can pay for law school almost exclusively or exclusively using federal student loans, with the kind of notable exception of the bar study period that many people borrow for. I was a little shocked to figure that out when I was getting out of school that, You know, many people then end up paying for an expensive bar review course right after graduation because they don't always teach you how to pass the bar when you're in law school, especially if you go to a fancy law school where they don't teach you that really at all. And, um, you know, you can't get any more federal student loans once you graduate. So most people, lots of people borrow expensive private student loans on their way out the door. And I just want to urge people to minimize their borrowing of that loan and recognize it as a different kind of debt that won't be as flexible in repayment.
2: I might tack on to that. Just they give you a package, right, of loans while you're in law school. They, they sort of use that budget and then you apply for you've applied for aid. So then they use the budget and they show you what you can get with all the package of loans. And you're not under any obligation to actually take all that money. I think people maybe don't understand that one way to minimize your debt while you're in law school is to just turn down some of the loans that they're willing to give you. Because I remember seeing people sort of living high on the hog while they were in law school (laughs) off of their loans because they were actually able to get too much. The budget was just too high. You know, there were people who had roommates or whatever, and their rent wasn't as much as the budget was accounting for. And so then the, they're, like, taking these extra, you know, a few thousand dollars every semester and just spending it on whatever. And then, yeah, they don't realize they're going to have to repay that in just a few short years.
0: Yeah. That's really funny, actually. That, that reminds me when we were buying our house. They, these people told us, they say, you go to the loan officer, and they say, this is the house you can afford. And I'm thinking, where did you get that number? Like, seriously, like, that's great that I could max out and spend every penny I have on a house, but that seems really stupid. And the same is true for law school. I do remember people who are doing pretty well. It's when you consider the interest and everything that's going to come along with that, it's just exponentially. <laughs> you want to get out of it as quickly as possible. All right, so the next question is from Joe, and he says, I've been working full-time for four years and investing since I was 14-year-old. So Joe sounds like he knows what he's doing. But in any case, he says, I have a sizable investment account and IRA, would it be preferable to take out loans and maintain my account intact or should I instead drain my account down to an emergency size to minimize my loans or is there some other balance between those two extremes? He then adds, I am expecting to pay full price for school. So given that last comment, I guess he's probably shooting for some reach schools, maybe some top programs that he doesn't expect to be Above the average applicant, who knows if he if he actually is? Maybe he needs to realign his expectations. But in terms of his questions about his IRA and so on, do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I do. So um, I think that that the kinds of things that Joe wants to think about, and he's probably already thought of these things. Some uh, retirement accounts will have early withdrawal penalties or tax repercussions. So he wants to uh, be sure that he understands exactly what those fees or trade-offs might be. I don't think that, you know, he would want to go down to a very low balance. He did mention uh, smartly keeping an emergency fund in the bank. So, you know, I'm often asked how much should I borrow or what should I do with the money I have? Should I pay it to my student loans? And I think for sure everybody needs uh, some cash in the bank, an emergency fund. Um, people can differ about how much that they think is is worth keeping on hand or amassing on hand. But if you don't have, you know, at least a couple thousand dollars in the bank, you shouldn't be declining student loan borrowing, in my opinion. Um, you shouldn't live quite all the way on the edge, you know, if possible. So and, you know, then I think Joe wants to think about, you know, right now, interest rates on student loans, federal student loans are pretty good. A lot of students and and graduates are complaining about high interest rates on federal student loans. And certainly they're, they're significantly higher than, you know, than what people are getting on their mortgages right now. But considering that they are unsecured loans that are being being lent to people often who aren't working full-time or who don't have super long credit histories, it the federal student loan interest rates are in fact significantly lower than what people would be getting in the private market. And so depending on how investments and such are going for for Joe, you know, he wants to consider what, well, what kind of return does he think he'll get on the investment and how does that compare with the cost of borrowing? And, you know, depending on how you evaluate those things, which are variable, is, you know, sort of where you come down. I would say you, you cannot borrow for your retirement, which weighs in favor of keeping at least some funding going in a retirement account. But I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily be hoarding you know a whole bunch of cash when you could use it to avoid higher interest rate student loans. And so I you know encourage him probably look at go ahead and look at the Stafford loans. Depending on when he's in school, um, those have lower interest rates than the Grad Plus loans do, and maybe um, maybe get the get the Stafford, but avoid the Grad Plus. And maybe use the cash you have to keep up with the interest that accrues while you're in school, so that you can avoid having that interest tacked onto the principal of the loan or capitalized when you get out of school. And that's also a money-saving strategy.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I, do you know what the interest rates are roughly right now? I know for mortgages it's like three and a half, four percent, but for the the Stafford loans, um... yeah,
1: they're closer to they're closer to six and a half.
0: Wow, I mean,
1: but the thing is is that they change every year. So, like for Joe, you know, I would be encouraging him to look at whatever student loans he may already have if he does have any from undergraduate school and see what interest rates those are and then also to understand that loans that would be available to him for example in in this upcoming academic year would be at specific interest rates that are probably lower than what they're going to be, for example, in his next year. So the unsubsidized loans that folks are getting for this upcoming academic year are just under 6%, 5.84. But the plus loans are at 6.84. And, no. and that, again, is for professional borrowers. Undergraduates have a somewhat lower interest rate.
0: But when you take out those subsidized loans, they're paying your interest while you're in school, right?
1: Yes, but the subsidized loans are only available for undergraduates. So oh, you won't take oh, yeah, any right. more out once you're in law school.
0: Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you
1: you wouldn't necessarily um you know wanna, for example, clear out your, your bank accounts to pay off a subsidized loan since it as just as you say, Ben, would be uh it wouldn't be costing you money while you were in law school.
0: Yeah, well well I guess at six and six percent or so my inclination to Joe would be, tell me if you think otherwise, Heather, but I would say keep it all in the investments because over time, those investments are probably going to make 6%. Assuming he's in the stock market, he would know better about that. Obviously, he knows more about investing than I do. But as long as it's the same or higher, then I would rather have access to that cash because you can always just at any moment turn around and then pay down your loan. But if the interest is the same or less than your return, it's no different in my mind. And like you said, you're avoiding the penalties of withdrawing that early.
1: I think that's right, Ben. I mean, I think it through the same way um, that you just described. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. There's also that whole idea of the time value of money, which is correct, you know, that in the future when your loans are due, the money that you're spending to repay them is that future money is worth less than the money today. Mm -hmm. I'd say the only kind of concern about evaluating the return on the investment is that although you're right people would project you're probably going to get a six percent return in reality there's no guarantee so you you might lose your shirt
0: yeah it's just the kind of the risk i guess you'd have to evaluate but it seems like even if you didn't you know if you earn two percent or yeah you could lose some depends on how risky his investments are i guess but having access to that cash would seem valuable Whereas if you pay it now, you, it's already gone and now you just have loans and no access to cash in case something were to happen or I don't know what. But So the other question Joe asks is, I would be interested in hearing Heather discuss the postgraduate financial impact for a student who pursues a clerkship which pays only 55000 but has loan support from their school. I guess we touched on this a little bit earlier, but... Specifically, if that's your plan to go and do a clerkship, which is going to pay less, what do you think?
1: Clerkships are definitely lower paying than some private law firm positions, particularly in larger firms, but they are also useful in terms of increasing your marketability and the salaries that you can command after your clerkship. So clerkships are seen as prestigious and as good training and experience opportunities for newly minted lawyers. They also help people to establish strong, you know, professional networks that they can call upon in their career search. And then as the question implied, this is assuming that the law school may have some loan repayment assistance benefit. I would encourage people to look at the details of any particular school's program we refer to them generally as LRAPs for the acronym Loan Repayment Assistance Program. There are a number of them that actually exclude clerkships from benefits because of the reasons I mentioned that clerkships are really not seen as, as hardships, mainly not because of their salaries, but because of their being such a, an effective launching pad. And they are often temporary for one or two years. So, you know, my thought as far as career goals and money, I feel like people should really be pursuing the careers that they are most passionate about and moved by. So if you are interested in a clerkship, whether it's followed by, you know, high paying private sector work or any other kind of work, government or nonprofit work, I think particularly because of the the newer loan forgiveness programs that law graduates can afford to do whatever kind of work they want to. And I really do mean that. I mean, it, it used to, to be true that um, some people felt they had to make a lot of money in order to make the payments that were required of them. But these days, people have access to income-based repayment plans for their federal student loans and forgiveness provisions that are associated with them and that are particularly generous for People who pursue um, careers in public service. So, I think, you know, under the current system, we can afford to do whatever kind of work we want to do, and that you should figure out what's most important to you and then pursue that path. So, you know, I definitely think that if you want to do a clerkship, you can afford to do that and then do whatever you want to do afterward. If the only thing that matters is making the most money possible. It's debatable whether you would do better long term by going straight into a, a big law firm, or if you would do better long term by taking um, a lower salary for for a couple of years in a clerkship.
0: Nathan,
2: I have a couple of questions about L-raps. I am under the impression that, or at least the with the UC Hastings L-rap program. I know some people who were in the Hastings L-rap program they make you reapply for the program every semester and it's sort of like if we have the money then we will assist you with your loan payments. Are you aware of schools cutting their LRAP programs or or failing to to actually help people make yeah, those, those payments? it's worth
1: recognizing that um, just as Nathan's saying, the programs are virtually never guaranteed benefits. I can't think of a single school that promises that for sure they're going to come through for you the way you thought they would when you went to their school. On the other hand, I don't know of any example of a school that has just said, oh, you know what, sorry, we're, we're out of money, we're not going to give you any benefit. I think what is most common is that, you know, the devil's kind of in the details. So programs at many schools are pretty modest to begin with, and they have relatively small budgets or budgets that provide a benefit that's, you know, something but nowhere near, you know, generous. And so I think that, you know, especially if you're still considering law school and you're and you're considering um, the kind of career that would make it difficult to um, pay your loans without help, you should look at the design of the particular LRAP closely. Primarily, you should see what their budget is. How much money do they spend on the program every year? Have they done it for a long time? What's the source of that funding? Most often, it's a line item in the operating budget of the law school, which is more subject to change than if it were, for example, coming from endowed funding or partially endowed, which is less common, but is true at a few of the richer schools. But also look to see like, what are the um, employment eligibility requirements, earning requirements like salary caps? Because nearly every LRAP, you have to need help with your loans to get it. So they're they're never like any kind of a free lunch. You know, there's sort of a way of making it possible to to help the poor without yourself, you know, hopefully needing the food stamps, but they're really not any kind of windfall.
2: Can you uh, just roughly what's the what's that income limitation usually?
1: varies a tremendous amount, but it tends to be that, you know, you have to be earning, you know, civil legal aid, public defender, prosecutor kind of salaries. So and there and there are almost always benefits are limited to people who are doing, you know, public interest work. So even if you're not making very much money, if you're doing it in a private practice setting. You won't qualify for benefits under most schools' programs. Um, some schools have income caps at around the sixty thousand dollar mark, where you're no longer eligible for any benefits at all. Um, but it really does vary, and some schools don't even have a cap; they just sort of phase out benefits. It's handled in a lot of a lot of different ways. Most schools do provide a pretty clear description of their program, and so, you know, I would encourage people to really look at that and and to look and see, you know, what loans does it cover? Is it just law school loans? Some might even uh, give you assistance with undergraduate debt, um, most do not, and really kind of see if you hear any buzz about, you know, lack of funding or reducing funds or changing the program while you're in school. You'll want to keep your ear to the ground and stay, you know, advocate for yourself and your... Fellow classmates.
2: You also, if you get married, there's going to be like joint income at that point, right?
1: For a lot of programs, yes. And for the federal loan forgiveness, public service loan forgiveness, and the associated um, income based repayment plan, that can depend on how you choose to file your taxes. So there's some repayments um, that are not tied to income at all but there are others where it's tied either to the borrower's income or as you say to the to the the household income or the student loan borrower and his or her spouse is actually it's quite common to have your spouse's income affect your eligibility for various you know need-based programs as well as to potentially influence your student loan payments on a monthly basis.
0: Cool. Is there anything else, Heather, that you wanted to talk about? I know you mentioned some things at the beginning that you wanted to cover.
1: You know, I guess just generally to say to folks that, you know, don't borrow everything that you're eligible to borrow unless you need it. You know, do what you can to minimize your expenses. There's not a whole lot you can do. The main place you can reduce your expenses is with your housing costs. That's always going to be true, whether you're in school or not. And to really pay attention to the different kinds of financing that you're borrowing and to, to get your head around the way interest accrues because you can pay too much if you aren't, you know, kind of watching the store. Whereas if you, you know, sort of sink your teeth into it and make a plan, then you can you can meet, you know, all your goals and you can do everything you want to do and get the house and the education and the whole The whole bit, but it it doesn't really happen automatically. The system's pretty convoluted and you got to kind of make a plan and work it.
2: How do people contact you or is there anything you'd like to plug your website, Twitter?
1: I would love to see people visit me at my website. It's askheatherjarvis.com. There's a forum there where we do some conversation about, you know, Q and A. If you've got specific student loan questions, um, a lot of the stuff there is going to be become really important to people when they're when they're leaving school with a lot of debt. And so I would encourage people to sort of come back, and we'd love to see them. And really, as far as plugging anything, you know, if you are interested in advocating for yourself and the other students and alums of the institutions that you attend, I'm personally. Inclined to get the law schools as well as the employers and bar associations and, and all those players continue to be involved in supporting us with our student loans and making information and resources available to us, you know, including things like the trainings I do, you know, and consultations and the like. So I think schools and other institutions, some do a very good job and many could do a better job. So, you know, I encourage you to really ask for the support you need and if you're confused about stuff or if you want um, advice or you have questions that you're not getting answered to your satisfaction, that, you know, you continue to, to you know, kind of shake the boat until, until, you know, we get the system working a little better than it currently does.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much, Heather, for coming on and sharing us with us and our listeners all your thoughts on these issues. These are big issues and things that probably people don't think about as much or maybe don't want to think about as much as they should. And so um, I'm really glad that you were able to come. Uh, Nathan, any last thoughts?
2: No, yeah, just thanks, Heather. Um, Hopefully we can keep you in the loop and have you back on uh, when we get more questions along these lines. I think this was really helpful.
1: It was great talking to you, Nathan. Ben, thanks so much.
2: Yeah. See ya. Bye, Heather. Okay, well, Ben, that was awesome. What's, uh, What's next?
0: Okay, yeah, so let's jump into this. So we have some questions from students. Uh, The first question is from Melissa, and she says, Hi, I just stumbled on your podcast. I am almost 35 and a mom. My youngest will be in kindergarten in the next year, and I'm considering law school. Wow. I serve on our local school board, and I'm involved in many community issues, yet I'm I'm a total novice and don't even know where to start. I do have a few friends who are paralegals, and I know many lawyers. So she's familiar with with some people who do this, but this is where she's at. She's gotten a Princeton LSAT prep book, and I've done a lot of Googling for information. At this point, my my strategy is to slowly work through the study guide. Let's stop right there for a second. Nathan, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I had a student show up, a tutoring student show up the other day with the Princeton book. Uh, I grabbed it, took a look at it. It looks like total crap to me. I don't think that the Princeton book is going to be helpful. Uh, what do you think?
0: My experience in the past has been that it's not helpful and that it has some strange, uh, it even has a strange game in there which surprised me that I hadn't seen before and I don't think it existed. But it's that's weird because I feel like they've shifted to using only official materials or only official questions. So that. Plexby, but. Same thing,
2: it, yeah, I looked in it and it, there were games that I did not recognize at all, which made me think that they were made-up games. This might have been an older version of the book, maybe they have switched to use actual, real licensed games. Mm-hmm. But, uh, boy, if you're using a test prep book that doesn't use real logic games, that is a huge waste of time. Um, yes. What did you think about the diagrams <laughs> that they were that are in that book?
0: You know, I don't remember, I just, I remember specifically thinking, this is Princeton, like this, is one of the names that I think people think of first when they think of what should I do to prepare for a test. So it kind of surprised me, but I guess it was also heartening. with the competition is a little easier. Than <laughs> yeah, the the diagrams I for the
2: games I thought were almost comically overcomplicated and okay. just yeah. not useful at all. I mean, it was amazing. These huge grids. Um, oh, it was like yeah. a grid. <laughs> and then each of the boxes had a diagonal line through it, oh, so they no, were doing no, a grid. No. And then the and then it was like all X's and O's and just this whole bunch of additional extra abstraction. I'm sure that that method works for whoever's writing that book. You know, whoever, whoever wrote that book perfectly understands it, but um, I cannot imagine that that is learnable for anybody. And I've just I've had so many students who've come to me from Princeton or Kaplan saying. You know Princeton and Kaplan really helped me for the SAT. So then I got I took the LSAT class from Princeton and Kaplan mm-hmm. and those same students are almost like, "Boy, this this was just not helpful for me for the <laughs> LSAT at all." So that Princeton book, I don't think that's a good place to start. I would return it or recycle it or something, but I don't think it's really helpful.
0: Yeah, I agree. So Okay, that's your first idea is to drop that. So she goes on and says, I know many recommendations are like are to take a test first, but I think at this point, this would be setting me up for failure. I want to know the best places for learning strategy for the sections, and where would you tell someone with no LSAT prep background to start? So there's a lot right there. Um, first, she's hesitant to take a test from the get-go. What do you think about that? I mean... Every reputable
2: LSAT prep course that I know of, on the very first night of class, you're going to take a full practice test. I know that's what I do. That's what you do, Ben. That's what PowerScore did when I taught for PowerScore. I'll ask the class to show of hands how many people have, you know, this is going to be your very first LSAT, and everybody raises their hand, and we, we take the test. What I always say to people is, okay, good. We're all going to crash and burn together on this first test. Yeah. And who gives a shit? Yeah, it's a really common objection that I get for people uh, like Melissa saying, you know, I I don't want to take this test because I'm worried that it's going to set me up for failure. I think the important thing for her to remember is that taking this first test is really not for diagnostic purposes. The reason why you take a test is so that you can start to familiarize yourself with the test. I don't believe in reading a bunch of theory and strategy before you've actually attempted the test yeah. for for a couple reasons. One is the theory isn't going to make any sense before you've actually attempted the test. To get something out of the discussion of theory, you have to have a little bit of the practice first. Mm-hmm. It's like reading a book on how to ride a bicycle before you've ever seen a bicycle. The second reason why I think the theory first doesn't make any sense is that For a lot of people, much of the LSAT is going to be understandable in a very intuitive way. And I would hate to short circuit that I would hate to convince somebody that the LSAT is this special realm where you have to shut off all of your, you know, inherent knowledge and logic and smarts and common sense and do this strange, arcane LSAT stuff, because I just don't think that's the truth. I think that many of the logical reasoning questions, for example, if you just simply read it and understand what it says and understand what they're asking you, you can answer those questions in very common sense ways. And I think studying theory first in that case can actually hurt you. Uh, Because you're trying to employ all of these LSAT strategies when, in fact, you would have been perfectly equipped to just answer the question without those special strategies.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, You really want to build on an intuitive foundation and then incorporate strategies so that you can not rely on them to the point where you're not thinking about the test anymore. You really need to have your understanding of the test be first and foremost, and then incorporate Different techniques or ideas that are relevant to each question.
2: Yeah, I think you've got to be open to the possibility that the test is actually pretty manageable uh, or that you can actually just sort of naturally, intuitively read and understand and answer the questions. And when you start with theory, especially if it's a lot of really heavy handed theory like you find in a lot of the prep books that are out there then you get so caught up in question types and semantics and all of these little trademarked cheesy tricks and techniques and stuff that you forget that ultimately, you know, you need to read, you need to understand, and you need to just commonsensically respond to the questions. So starting with theory first, I think, is a big waste of time. I think it could actually be detrimental to your improvement. And I think that what Melissa needs to do is just dive right in There are 75 or more now of these practice tests that are available for us to study. You're not going to run out of tests. And I get it that people are like, I don't want to horrify myself by seeing a terrible first score. You know, in that case, I might even say, okay, why don't you not score it? Like, how about correct it, but not score it? That's an interesting idea, right? To, To just don't look at the scoring scale. But I think you do need to sit down and put 35 minutes on the clock and do a section and do do four sections, do the full test so that you can see what's on the test. And then you need to look at the answer key and mark the ones that you missed. And then now those are those are the opportunities to learn. So go back and review those mistakes. The mistakes are the test telling you what you don't understand. And if you can't figure it out on review, then okay, now there are some opportunities for you to go learn some theory about the test and learn learn some strategies and techniques and question types and all that stuff. But before you do that, when you're reading theory devoid of any context, I really don't think that's the most efficient way to improve at all.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more.
2: So, yeah, you know, don't stop procrastinating. Get over it. <laughs> do a test and see what happens.
0: Yeah. The next question here is from Eric, who wants to know a little bit about diagramming and so forth. And anyways, he says, uh, hello, Nathan. So he must have been emailing you, I guess. Is this a student or podcast listener? Do you know? Podcast listener. Oh, yeah. Okay, here he goes. He says, I really appreciate the great tips you provide during your podcast. I was wondering about your approach to must-be-true questions. And diagramming for the answers using logic. I am using seven stage method for prep, and they have a section devoted to learning/slash memorizing both common, valid, and invalid argument forms. I find this to be rather time consuming. Should must-be true questions be answered more intuitively? When should diagramming best be employed? If at all, in your opinion, thanks to he's asking about our approach or your approach to must-be-true questions, and then diagramming those answers that have formal logic in the logical reasoning. So we're not talking about games here. We're talking about logical reasoning. When should I diagram in the logical reasoning section, basically, right? Didn't you say that his question is here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think he's got a few different questions here, but on the logical reasoning, I diagram only when necessary to understand the argument and answer the question. And it has almost nothing to do with question type. So step one here is that you know Eric seems to be kind of conflating. Oh, it's a must-be-true question, so therefore I have to do a diagram. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I—that's absolutely incorrect, in my opinion. I agree. Okay. So I diagram maybe what one question per section, something like that on the logical reasoning on average. Sure. Sometimes there'll be three in the same section. Sometimes there'll be zero on an entire test, Yep. but it's something like one question per section where I feel like I can only understand this question. If I make a diagram, I can only understand the argument if I make a diagram. So I'm going to make a diagram and notice how all of these little pieces and parts link together. That's Step one, I think in answering Eric's question, Yeah, you know, um, not to go back to my number one favorite hobby horse, but I, it's tempting to say, you know, maybe reading the question stem first here is what's happening. And he's like, Oh, this is a must be true question. So now I'm going to start doing a diagram when I read the argument. Yeah. And that's bullshit. I mean, that's just not what you're need, what you need to be doing here. What you need to be doing is as much as possible, intuitively attacking the arguments themselves, and I think for most people, a diagram doesn't help you to intuitively attack the argument. The diagram is going to inherently have all this abstraction in it, which opens up opportunities for making mistakes. And the fact that you're writing a diagram, I think, kind of distracts you from really just listening to what the speaker is saying and really kind of commonsensically engaging with what the speaker is saying. So I'll, you know, I feel like when I start making a diagram, I'm kind of like cringing. You know, it's a little bit like, all right. I guess I have to make a diagram here
0: Mm -hmm.
2: in order to to figure this one out. But no, it would certainly not be step one of my process. It would be only in circumstances where I can't understand the argument uh, otherwise.
0: Yeah, so I completely agree with you that it doesn't have to do with question type. It's very rare. It's usually one time per test, maybe never, depending on what questions they give you. I do notice some trends though If I am diagramming, it tends to be a must be true question or a sufficient assumption question or a matching question, a parallel reasoning question. Again, I'm not saying at all that if you encounter those questions, you should start diagramming, it's the opposite. I'm saying that if I'm diagramming, it's probably gonna be one of those questions, but diagramming happens very rarely. And for the vast majority of instances that I encounter those questions, I am not diagramming. I've also noticed that I tend to diagram arguments that are short and formulaic. And it's a situation where I read the argument and I encounter uh, an if-then statement or a statement that can be translated into an if-then statement. Um, For example, all cats are purple. The word all would signal to me that I'm about to read a statement that could be translated into an if-then statement which would simply be, if you're a cat, then you're purple. And if I see that and then I see another if then statement, then I might start thinking to myself, hmm, maybe, maybe diagramming this would make sense because maybe the correct answers are going to ask me to find a matching argument or something like that. and being able to follow the chain of logic will become really important because they're going to have things going forwards and backwards and I want to make sure the correct answer is going in the right way. But it's not a situation where I see an if-then statement and I start drawing. Oh, there's an if-then statement. Guy draw it. It's like I see one, I see another, maybe I see a third in the conclusion. All of a sudden I'm thinking, wow, there's a lot of if-then statements there. But even then, if they wrote the argument in a really easy way if they said all cats are purple and everything that's purple likes flowers therefore all things that like flowers are cats which is a flawed argument but if it's something that you can follow in your mind intuitively and you can sort of see the chain in your mind i don't draw it it makes sense. no
2: right i would only ever draw if i felt like i had to draw in order to understand the argument it does tend to happen more frequently on very short arguments. I think on very short arguments, it's it's also safe, it's like it's too uh, dangerous to do it on a really long argument. There's just too much there, and you start making a diagram, and next thing you know, you've got ten different premises on your paper, yeah. and it's just like a huge mess.
0: And someone's gonna get one of those backwards. Because they're going to exactly exactly
2: that's what I'm saying as soon as you start with that abstraction you're going to possibly you know confuse yourself and get something backwards and now you're screwed. So the time when I find myself doing it is when it has short the argument is very short and it'll have a few premises that have some if then elements to them and also I can't engage naturally with the argument so it's like it happens when the rules are very arbitrary. I find mm-hmm. where th- where they're not common sense rules. Sure. So every house on River Street that has a front yard is made of brick. <laughs> Wait, now right? you're,
0: now you're gonna get us into a uh, copyright? No, because I'm making
2: it up. No, it's it's uh, I'm riffing on it. Okay, whatever. Um, that's a term of art. It's ones where they can be clear statements, but they just don't resonate with you. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't make sense in the real world. Yeah, yeah. And so then you have to sort of document them so that you can remember what, what all the rules are. And then you can, once you start documenting, then you see how they link together. And now you can understand the argument. You're also right that it's frequently going to turn out to be a must be true question or a sufficient assumption question, especially sufficient assumption question. And there are times where it's like the only way to solve the question, Mm -hmm. but it's so rare that I frequently, when I'm teaching it in class, I say, Well, I'm gonna show you what I would do to solve this one. But this is really the difference between a 175 and a 176. And if you never learned how to do what I'm gonna do right now, it really wouldn't hurt you that much. It would be like one question per test, maybe,
0: yeah.
2: that you would really need this technique. So if it just doesn't click for you, if it's just not making sense, or, you know, it's not just not that necessary. I want to move on, I think, to the other part of his question. I'm really not familiar with all the Seven Sage stuff, but apparently there's a section devoted to learning and memorizing both common valid and invalid argument forms. Uh, Eric is saying it's time-consuming. You know, Should I do this? It's not something that I teach. I don't know, Ben, have you encountered this, or do you, no, you know I, what yeah, he's I talking about? Yeah, I just got about? this
0: question last night, actually. So I don't teach a bunch of common valid and invalid argument forms there's only 3 that i mentioned and those 3 are necessary versus sufficient problems and we you know go into examples so there you're means.
2: teaching the flaw of fucking up the contrapositive and doing the sufficient and necessary flaw so that's an in, it, common invalid argument form that's right. yep okay good
0: these are the 3 you have to know cuz you will see all of them on your test and after that uh, the rest, it's better just to encounter them and remember examples of things that are bad and why you thought they were bad, not to actually come up with names. So then the second one, so the first one was necessary versus sufficient mix up um, where you're talking about they they messed up the contrapositive like you're saying. Yep. The next one is uh, going from a correlation uh, to a causation. So having evidence about a correlation and then drawing a conclusion about some causal relationship between those two items. And then the last one would be some form of part-to-whole or whole-to-part. Like I feel like there's a lot of different flaws that basically are whole-to-part or part-to-whole arguments, and you can just basically all throw them into that category. So I feel like those three are very, very common, and that's what I would Yeah,
2: Yeah, I, I think that that's right. I do the same thing. I mean, I definitely don't have a, hey, I'm going to do a big lesson now on 15 different invalid argument forms. I could you know uh the most and some flaw or the the like the ordering of if you do some before all or if you do all before some you know and one of them's right and one of them's wrong, I could do a lesson about that, but it kind of goes back to what we were talking about uh on the last question with the theory versus practice issue,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I would say you know you're gonna encounter. Plenty of invalid arguments if you just keep doing tests and sections. And so I totally agree that the main ones, sufficient, necessary, correlation, causation, and yeah, you could talk about the part-to-whole, whole-to-part flaws. Once you got those three, then I think it's time to just dive in and see what else you find on the tests rather than like trying to memorize every invalid argument. There are infinite invalid arguments.
0: Yeah, it's almost like, I think the purpose of law school right the law school law school is designed to make you think like a lawyer to become critical to become analytical to understand how to analyze things but I get a lot of people who talk to me who have no experience with law school and they say hey Ben you went to law school right so what's the law on X I'm like I have no idea what the law is on X but I can tell you what I think about it if you give me the law and whether I think it's stupid or not, but I think that's how you have to approach these arguments. is You don't want to become an expert in all the different flaws, just an expert at pointing out stuff you
2: think. Yeah, about. and then it says here that there's also a section devoted to learning and memorizing common, uh, common valid argument forms. I've never, ever done anything like that. Have you?
0: No, well, if they give you a valid argument on the test, they're not asking you about the argument. They're asking you about... Like what role does the first sentence play? So I don't, I'm having trouble seeing the value. Of that. I mean, seven Sage probably sees the value in that. And maybe it's good for people to see a valid argument next to a flawed argument so they can then recognize why it's flawed. But um, yeah, I'm not too sure why they would spend time memorizing that.
2: I guess every once in a while I do, you know, just say, okay, here, here's what a good argument might look like. I, I in the context of teaching, Um, the sufficient and necessary flaw. Yes,
0: yes. You provide a good example. Mm -hmm. I might
2: say, well, here's an argument that would make sense and give a premise and another premise and then arrive at a conclusion that's obviously valid. Yeah. But other than that basic, I guess we call it a syllogism, two premises and a conclusion is a syllogism. Sure. Other than that, just basic, here's one example of a valid argument. It makes sense, right? I would never say, and here's 10 other valid Forms of valid arguments that you need to memorize. I I would not do
0: that. No, the only reason would be in the context to help them understand a bad one.
2: Yeah. I I like this idea that every test contains the DNA of the whole test. Mm -hmm. And that if you really fully understood every single question on just one LSAT, you would basically understand every LSAT.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Because you will, in any given one test, you are going to encounter the sufficient necessary flaw. You are going to encounter correlation causation or other causal issues. You are going to encounter probably, I think you're right, the whole to part, part to whole flaw is really pretty common. And then you're going to encounter a variety of other flaws but, and some good arguments as well. I just don't know why you wouldn't learn from the test rather than learning from some abstraction of the test.
0: Yeah, no. And, and speaking of abstraction, so I have a student who uh, I'm working with right now and he's, he's uh, doing pretty well and trying to get a little higher and he took pictures before. And so every now and then he talks about the class and he says, he said to me the other day, he said, well, we, we, we had a list of 80 flaws. I said, wow. (laughs) I could not list you 80 flaws if I tried or someone put a gun to my head. Um, So then he brought it into me, and this list is hilarious. I think they've actually taken specific logical reasoning questions, like one-off questions that I remember, and that particular question was exhibiting this particular flaw, and then they tried to describe that flaw in abstract terms. So yeah. um, some of these flaws that I'm looking at right now are definitely things that are very common, like necessary versus sufficient. But then you have this other one. It's like attempting to establish a correlation by focusing only on only one of the things being compared. Like <laughs> that is yeah. like one question on the LSAT ever. That is... And they found it and they're like, that's law number 49. It's just yeah. insane.
2: Yeah, I, wow. I mean, I got my 179 in 2007 and I've been teaching LSAT professionally since 2009. And that flaw that you just described is like, I don't, I wouldn't know how to ta- I would have no clue what that flaw is. <laughs> I can only imagine, but I think you're absolutely right. It's like, hey, let's take one question that appeared one time on one LSAT and then let's abstract it into a flaw and then let's put it into our list of like here's all the flaws that you need to be familiar with. I'm not uh, an expert in all different forms of teaching and uh, maybe that works for some students but that is not what I would do. I've
0: had respect for teachers because I feel like you know they they give out official questions they give out a lot of questions people seem to like their class generally I'm not speaking for everyone obviously but like I look at this and this is this blows my mind. This is like when we find those Princeton review books and I think to myself, Well, wow, maybe the competition is not as strong as I think. Like I just I don't get it. This is insane. There's no way that someone's taking the test and they're like, oh question twenty seven. Yeah, this is definitely um, assuming the greatest part is a member of the greatest whole. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's flaw number sixty three. Um, okay, next question. I mean that's this this has gotta be a joke.
2: It's not a joke, but it's just a post hoc you know, rationalization for what you would do intuitively if you were smart and reading critically and commonsensically attacking the argument. So, you know, hey, if this stuff works for you, fantastic. I'm not hating on or any other um, big prep company. There's a lot of good you could say about a lot of those programs. But we've got a question here asking us, you know, if we should focus on an intuitive understanding of the test or memorize all of this theoretical stuff. And I, it's clear where I fall on, you know, my, my opinion is there are a lot of people who are capable of just naturally, intuitively understanding the test. And and if not, you'll miss that question and then you'll reason your way through it or have someone explain it to you and then you'll get it. and. I don't really think that memorizing that list of flaws in advance would have helped you very much in that situation because very likely you would have gotten, you know, you would have gotten most of those right in the first place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. So uh, that's everything right from Eric.
2: Yeah. I think that takes care of that question. Uh, thanks again, uh, listeners for all of your questions. You can email us help at thinkinglsat.com. that gets to both uh, me and Ben Ben is Ben at strategyprep.com. I am Nathan at foxlsat.com. We really appreciate you listening. Um, we don't advertise. We rely on word of mouth to spread the word about the show. So please uh, tell somebody, tell a friend, give us five stars on iTunes, subscribe, and uh, thanks for listening.
0: Thanks. you.